to be in love, right? <laughs> uh, I love it. I love it. I, I, I'm excited about that because just a, a wonderful young couple in our church that get the importance of church being central to their life together and uh, to this important time for them. And we've been in a series looking at the fact that the church is a big deal. It's kind of a big deal. So uh, if you have your Bible, go to Matthew 16. Matthew 16 is what we're gonna be this, where we're going to be this morning. Matthew chapter 16 is we continue to look at the importance of the church. Uh, if you are able to stand, please do so. As we want to honor the reading of God's Word, Matthew 16, and we're going to look at verse 13 down to 18. The scripture says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, and another Elijah, and others Jeremiah, and one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is God's word. Pray with me. Father, thank you uh, for this privilege now to look at your word. Would you come and teach us by your spirit? Help us understand the importance of all this. Spirit of God, break to pieces any routine and help us see the beauty of your calling us together. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Tell me that you went home and swiped a ball that was signed by Babe Ruth, and you brought it out here and actually played with it? And actually played with it? Yeah! Yeah, but I was gonna bring it back! But it was signed by Babe Ruth! Yeah, yeah, you keep telling me that! Who is she? What? What? The Sultan of Swat! The King of Crash! The Colossus of Clout! The Colossus of Clout! Now, if you know anything about baseball, you can probably relate to their frustration because you don't play with a baseball that's signed by Babe Ruth. That's because you can buy a baseball at any local sporting goods store for a couple of dollars. But a baseball that's signed by Babe Ruth is worth thousands of dollars. And that's not just true with, with a baseball, that's true with a lot of other things. Take, for instance, this dress. It's a very nice dress. It's a very expensive dress. In and of itself, it's worth $12,000. But when it was owned and worn by Marilyn Monroe, it sold for $1.3 million. Or take, for instance, this guitar. It's a nice Fender Strat. You could probably get one of those for maybe $500 or so. But if you're talking about Eric Clapton's famous Blackie, it's worth almost a million dollars. 
Or take, for instance, these drawings or writings on a page. For most of us, if we did that, it wouldn't be that valuable at all. But because it's Leonardo da Vinci's codex, Bill Gates bought it for over $30 million. What's the point? Hear me. The value of an object is directly related to the significance of its owner. The value of an object is directly related to the significance of its owner. A baseball is just a baseball until it's signed by Babe Ruth. A dress is just a dress until it's worn by Marilyn Monroe. A guitar is just a guitar until it's the personal property of Eric Clapton. And the church of Jesus Christ is nothing but a gathering of human beings until you realize who Jesus is. I would submit to you that the dots that most of us have not connected as Christians is that when we talk about the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church of Christ, do we really understand who Christ is? Because if we do, there is a direct implication to who Jesus is and our understanding of participation in an attitude toward the church. These two things cannot be separated, which begs the question, who is Jesus? And that is exactly the question Jesus is asking us and his disciples in this text this morning. Notice verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus here brings his disciples into a region, Caesarea Philippi. It's in the northern part of Israel. It's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's much more a secluded, quiet place. After all, if you go back a few chapters, you know this is a busy, chaotic time. You ever had that time you just kind of need to get away? I mean, they've had the, the feeding of the 5,000. They've had debates with the Pharisees. They've had people that, that are asking for miracle after miracle. And Jesus kind of takes them out of the hostility of Jerusalem and the, the needy crowds of Galilee. And he takes them all the way that far north he went up north to get his disciples in a quiet place because he wants to ask them a very serious question. Now he starts with, who do men say that I am? What's the word on the street? What's the buzz around town? What are people saying about me? After all, Jesus was then and is now a very fascinating and polarizing figure. There were all kinds of views about Jesus in those days. There's all kinds of views about Jesus in our day. I mean, just imagine asking people out in our culture, who do you think Jesus is? You'd get a lot of answers. He's divine, but not eternal. He's a prophet, but he's not more important than Muhammad. He's a wise teacher with some important things to say. He's a religious leader, a historical figure. Some might even say, who cares? But you'd get mixed reaction if you ask people who they think Jesus is. So the disciples give their answer, verse 14. They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. 
Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, the disciples here are being a little positive. What I mean here is they're not giving the whole story. They're not being untrue. They're, they're just not telling Jesus all the opinions that are out there. Of course they think Jesus is a prophet, which is what John the Baptist and Elijah and, and uh, Jeremiah have in common. Jesus wasn't a mild-mannered, passive, patty-cake, skinny-jean-wearing, decaf-coffee personality. Wait a minute, I drink decaf coffee, right? He, he wasn't passive. He, he spoke with the authority of God. And so it was very natural for people to assume he was a prophet of God. My point is that's just not the only view out there about Jesus. If you went back just a few chapters to Matthew chapter 13 and you asked the Pharisees, who do you think Jesus is? They would have channeled their inner church lady and said, we think he's Satan. <laughs> Literally, they said he does the works of Beelzebul. He does the work of Satan. There were all kinds of views about Jesus, and really, the, that's not even really the point. So many people get hung up on what does John the Baptist mean, and da, da, da. The point is this. If you looked at Jesus' ministry, so much of it looked right, yet most people still got his identity wrong. So Jesus then turns it on the disciples and says this, verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now it's personal. It's easy to talk about what other people say, but now Jesus is saying, who do you say that I am? And friends, hear me this morning, it was personal then and it's personal now. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what anybody else says about Jesus. You have to give an account about what you believe about Jesus. Friends, there comes a day when you've got to get past what your church told you growing up, what your pastor preached, what your spouse believes, what your parents have taught you, and you have to make a personal decision about what you believe about Jesus Christ. Nobody else can answer that for you. And how you answer that question determines everything about you. It really does. It determines what you value. It determines how you see the world. It determines how you live. And it determines where you will spend eternity. Who do you say that I am? Now, Peter, 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 Peter. He's the first to speak. The question is to the whole disciples, you is y'all. And no, that's not another cheap way to get a southern reference in. It is, who do you, that is the disciples, say that I am? What is your personal response to me in light of what you've seen? Peter, in his typical way, is the first to speak. He's almost always the first to speak. And he usually is open mouth, insert foot. In fact, oftentimes Jesus just has to say, Peter, 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 you are so stupid. And you say, Pastor, that's really hard. And you think, get behind me, Satan, is nice? Many times Jesus has to rebuke Peter for speaking out of turn and saying things wrong. 
But in this case, he's right on the money. He gets it exactly right. Notice what he says. And Simon Peter replied, verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the Bible in a statement. That is a mouthful. Peter says, listen, in all the things that I've seen and all the things that I've observed about you, what I personally believe as I speak on behalf of this group is that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what we believe about you. We believe that you are the Christ, meaning that you are the human Messiah, the one anointed from God, the one that fulfills all the promises of God, the one that generations after generations have been longing for. The one that all the way back in Genesis when, when mankind fell into sin and the earth was cursed by sin and God said, I'm going to send a seed, a human seed, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And all throughout the Old Testament, where is a king who will reign? Where is a prophet who will speak of God? Where is a priest who will offer that final sacrifice? Where is a savior who will bring hope into the world and save us from our sins. And Peter, in two words, the Christ is saying, I believe you're him. I believe you're him. And then he goes on not just to say the Christ, but the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, Peter believes that Jesus is fully divine, that he is eternal, that he is sovereign over everything. You say, where are you getting that in the text? It's because the word son is different in the ancient Near East than what we think about. In the ancient Near East, a son was whatever the father was. If your dad was a carpenter, son, guess what you were? A carpenter. If your dad was a, a shepherd or a baker or whatever, that's what you would be. Why? Because a son was what the father was. This is why, by the way, in John chapter 5, when Jesus is claiming to be the son of God, the Jews get really upset and they want to kill him. Do you know why? Quote, because he was claiming that God was his father, making him equal to God. Peter is saying, I don't just believe you're a prophet of God like everybody else. I believe you are God. Jesus, I believe that you are the human being anointed of God that would come. And I believe you are God. You are God in the flesh. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. What a statement. What a a confession of who Jesus is. C.S. Lewis says, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Jesus is either everything or nothing. There is no middle ground. A prophet of God, it's not enough. A good teacher, it's not enough. 
You either confess Him as who He is, the Christ, the Son of the living God, or you dismiss Him altogether. Now, how did Peter get this right? I know it's because he's really smart. You know, he just has a knack for these kinds of things. Hello, do you know anything about Peter? Peter's the guy in the Gethsemane that, you know, had the sissy swing with the sword. It's like he just chopped a little ear off, and it's like somebody teach that guy how to fight. He's a fisherman, or was. Oh, no, no, no. He, he didn't get this because he's smart. He didn't get this from man. He got this by the grace of God. Notice what Jesus says to him after his confession, 17. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That word blessed means graced one, favored. In other words, Peter saw Jesus for who he really was because God was gracious to let Peter see it. Friends, listen to me. You can sing songs about Jesus and you can read books about Jesus and you can have conversations about Jesus, but you won't see Jesus for who he is unless the grace of God opens your eyes to see. And when I say that, I'm, I'm actually paraphrasing the Apostle Paul when he says, the natural mind does not understand the things of God. And, and that's the whole, that's the point of the text. The contrast is this. Those who have not experienced the transforming grace of God can only define Jesus in human explanations. Well, he must be a teacher or a prophet. But those who have experienced the transforming grace of God see him for who he is, namely the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is grace, 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 grace. And isn't that the whole story of Peter's life after all? I mean, it wasn't just grace in this moment. Again, I just mentioned he was a, he was a fisherman. Listen, Peter's day was like, get up in the morning, check your nets, go fish, go sell what you caught, Check your nets to make sure they need any repairs. Go to bed, wake up, and do it again tomorrow. And then Jesus came along and turned his life upside down. And the things he's been able to see and observe are all because of the grace of God. He stands here going against all the cultural trends of the day, but by the grace of God. His journey from this point on, when before long he's going to be scared of a little girl? Really? And then in the book of Acts, he's going to be used mightily of God to preach the gospel to the nations? What's the point? The point is, up to the confession, at the confession, and beyond the confession was a story of grace. And that's your story too. It is grace that's brought us safe thus far, and it's grace that will lead us home. There is no grounds for boasting whatsoever if you're a Christian. 
Peter cannot take any pride in himself that he got this right. The boasting is all, as Jesus would say, my Father who is in heaven. It is his grace that's allowed you to see. And maybe some of you would say, I want this grace. I want this grace this morning. Here's what the Bible says. By grace you've been saved through faith. Believe. Please believe your life hangs on this. As is said before, I am a dying man preaching to dying men. If you don't get this right, it affects everything about your life. And that means you must look to him this morning by faith and say, I believe Jesus is God in the flesh, Savior and Lord. I surrender to him by faith. And oh, you will know the grace of God. You will know the transforming power of God's grace. How have you answered this question, friends? Who do you say he is? Oh, that grace would open our eyes to see it rightly, the way it did for Peter. Well, you may be thinking, uh, what does this have to do with the church? Somebody tell that guy the series is that the church is a big deal. He's just talking about Jesus. So what does Jesus have to do with the church? Answer, everything. Everything. I'm getting excited. Calm down, calm down, calm down. Deep breath. Okay. It is out of the phrase, you're Christ, the Son of the living God. That's who you are. Right. You got it right, Peter. You got it right because of grace. And it's out of that that then Jesus says this, verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build, here's the two words, my church. Whose church? Wes Feltner's church? Roger Thompson's church? Rick Warren? Andy Stanley? Tim Keller? Insert your favorite radio preacher, whatever. Is it the people who's been going here the longest? Is it their church? Is it the people who give the most? Is it their church? Is it, is it the old people? Is it their church? Is it the young people? Is it their church? Wrong. The church of Jesus Christ belongs to no one but Jesus Christ. It's his church. The Son, the, the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's my Church, now come in here close. If the value of something is directly related to the significance of its owner, and the owner of the church, my church, is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then your view, attitude, and participation in the church has everything to do with Jesus. You can't separate the two. He won't let you. The church is a big deal because Jesus is a big deal. He's 
the Christ, the Son of the living God, and it's His church. In other words, when you know that she, that is, by the way, when I say church, I'm not talking about this building. I'm talking about, remember 1 Corinthians 1, two weeks ago? I know you remember every point of the sermon. It is Christians, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together in a local assembly. That's the expression locally of the universal church. Here's the shorthand. You! I'm talking about you. Your value is directly related to the significance of your owner. When you understand that it is his bride, it changes everything about how you view her. When I was in high school, you know, early high school, you know, we did things that, you know, you're, you look back on, you wish you would have said differently. Uh, we were sitting around one day talking about girls. I know what high school boys do. We were sitting around talking about girls, and one of my friends, we'll call his name Kevin, in case he's listening online. Um, Kevin said something that shocked all of us. He said, you know, I just think Sarah is awesome, and I'm going to ask her out. And we just looked at each other, and we were like, like the Sarah we know? I mean, the Sarah that's like mean as a snake? I mean, she's the meanest girl in school. Let some girls cussed. Sarah said words auto mechanics had never heard. I mean, it was that bad. Listen, some girls like cussed. I mean, some girls uh, smoked. Sarah like chewed tobacco. I mean, she was one of those teen girls. I mean, just like, really? The best way I could describe her would be like Uncle Cy in a dress. You know, I mean, that... Yeah. Yeah. I know that's terrible. It's terrible to say that. So we were like, what are you talking about? But sure enough, he asked her out and she said no. And uh, he was really discouraged, really discouraged. So we were trying to be encouraging of our friend and lift him up and, you know, doing what (laughs) godly teenagers shouldn't do. And we were like, Kevin, 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 don't worry about it. She's awful. She's terrible. Why would you even want to waste your time with her? I mean, you could do so much better than Sarah. Just don't even think another word about her. She's not even worth it. Well, sure enough, Sarah changed her mind. They started dating, became high school sweethearts, and got married. How's that for the ultimate backfire, right? And now they live in my hometown, and now when I go home and go to the grocery store, do you know what I pray? Please don't let me round the corner, and there's Kevin and Sarah. Who am I kidding? I don't want to round the corner and there's Sarah, right? She'll beat me up. Now, I look back at that and I think it's bad enough that we said those things about any one period. But it took on a whole new meaning when I realized we had said those things about his wife. Once I saw her as his bride, it changed everything. 
Don't you see, dear friends, that my burden here is for that person that is saying, I love Jesus, but I don't want the church. That person that's saying, I'm so busy with life and kids and hobbies, I don't have time for the people of God. Those people that say, I've been burned and had a bad experience, which I would not be dismissive of, but they have said, I no longer have any hope for the church or that person that's been going to church for a long time and all they want to do is grumble and complain and be negative about the people of God, what I simply want to say to them and you is, would you be willing to say that if you were looking at Jesus face to face? Would you say that about his bride? Would you speak that way about her? Would you dismiss her that easily? Could you look at the one who, according to Ephesians 5, laid his life down for her? Could you look at the one who, according to Acts 20, it says, redeemed her by his blood? He loves her. He died for her. He shed his blood for her. The Christ, the Son of the living God, cares that much for her. How in the world could we see her as no big deal? The moment you devalue the church is the moment you have separated her from Jesus. And so I want to ask you, like, how do you speak of other Christians in the body of Christ? Are you, are you participating in the body of Christ? Are you supportive of what the church is doing? No. Stop. It's like, forget this whole pastor's just trying to twist my arm about something. Please hear me. This is meant to cause us to see the beauty of this. It's not secondary. Unless Jesus is secondary. Not because we are as important as Jesus on our own, but that our value is directly tied to Him. And if that would radically change the way we think about what we do together, praise God. The church is a big deal. In fact, it's such a big deal. Notice what Jesus says about it, and we'll close. 18 again. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's two things out of there that I want us to see here that Jesus says about the church, and I am going to get fired up, and I'm not going to take a deep breath. Jesus says, my church, let me tell you about my church. Let me tell you about my people. Let me tell you about my bride. Ain't nothing going to stop her. I don't care what people try to do. Nobody's going to shut her down. You know why? I'm going to build it. 
Who are you? The Christ, the son of the living God, which means don't expect to get halfway through this project and see Jesus quit. Jesus will see the building of his church through to the end. There's nothing that can shut it down because when Jesus says, Peter, rock, on this rock, I'll build my church. There has been so much debate over that. It's really simple. The apostle Paul said in Ephesians 2 that the foundation of the church was built on the apostles and prophets. And what you see in the book of Acts is the apostles going out, not with robes and having people kiss their rings. You see the apostles going out preaching, he's the Christ, the son of the living God. And people believe that. And they start assembling together on that. In other words, you guys are going to be a part of an incredible movement as I build my church. And all you got to do is read the book of Acts to see it. I'm going to build this. And here's what's really exciting for me. We get to be a part of it. Right here in the South Metro, we get to be a part of this awesome story of Jesus building his church. And so what I want to say to you as your pastor, and I'm fired up, is let's go. If nothing can hold us back, then what in the world is holding us back? When I read phrases like that, what gets exposed in my life is the lack of boldness and courage together as the people of God to say, go, do what God's called you to do. I'm going to build this thing and I want you to be a part of something. Don't you want to be a part of something that you look back on and say, what in the world happened there? I don't know, but Jesus did it. It's all I know is Jesus did it. You want to be a part of that? You awake this morning? Anybody with that? Jesus is going to build his church. So let's go. Let's not play church. Let's be the church. And let's do it by grace. Nothing can stop her. And not only can nothing stop her, Jesus says nothing can kill her. When he says the gates of hell shall not prevail. That word hell is really Hades. Hades was the place of the dead. Listen to me just quickly. This isn't like when you face a demon, you're going to overcome that demon because the gates of hell can't prevail. Well, okay, maybe that's true, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying not even death will destroy us. And do you know why death will not destroy us? Because our owner walked out of the grave. (laughs) When they say about us, you're old-fashioned, you're outdated, you're insignificant, you're declining, I might remind you that 2,000 years ago they said the same thing about our owner. When they drove nails through his hands, laid him in a tomb, he was stone-cold dead, and they said, well, so much for that, good riddance, he's no longer important, he no longer matters, and guess what happened three days later? A dead corpse walked out of the grave. And so when they look at us and say, you are insignificant, all we have to remember is that our, our significance is found in a resurrected man. And brother, if you can't kill the head, you won't kill the body.
the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is His church, and therefore you will not stop her, and you will not kill her. So how important is she to you? How important is she to you? So look around. Do you look around much? We're just a gathering of people. We don't look like much. And that's a compliment. It's just a gathering of people. It's just the sound of water in a baptistry. It's just a little glass of juice and a little cracker. It's just a mission team that goes off to China or Chicago. It's just musical instruments and voices raised. It's just some families that meet in a home that talk about how they're trying to live this out. It's just a man and a Bible and a Sunday morning. We're just a local church. Yeah. You're right. But we belong to Him. And our value is directly related to the significance of our owner. Let's pray. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. There are some of you here this morning, you have never confessed Jesus Christ as Christ in your life. You've never seen Him as Savior and Lord and put your faith in Him. This morning, Word of God says to you, who do you say Jesus is? Others of you, there have been attitudes about the church, that is about the people of God. There are issues with your participation. There are things stirring in you that God is at work causing you to see the significance of this. What's He leading you to do? Father, I ask that you would, by your Spirit, continue to work in us. I'm convinced there are attitudes in the room and behaviors in the room that need to be changed by your grace in light of your word this morning. So would you do that by your Spirit? Help us in that. Help us see this is a big deal. In Jesus' name, amen.